Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's October 10th. Welcome to a new episode. And in this episode, there's a lot going on this week. I actually wasn't going to do a podcast this week. I was going to skip one. But there just was too many pressing things that I felt I needed to talk about. And I just don't get enough of an outlet. So uh, pity you, poor listeners. You get to hear what's on my mind. Some of the topics that we're going to cover today are the midterm elections that are coming up in a month are obviously hugely important, and it's a referendum of the Biden administration and you know how he's handled the country over the last two years. There's Obviously, this is a big election because it's going to go into it, the control of the House, the control of the Senate, and it will really set the agenda for the next two years in terms of what Biden can or can't do for the remainder of his first term, assuming he lives that long. I'm also going to talk about, um, I got to talk about Eric Adams. I mean, the mayor of New York, mayor in the club. This week, just when you think that he couldn't top himself, he did. And I'm going to get into that in a bit in terms of the state of emergency that he declared in New York for the uh, cities being overrun by 17,000 of the 2 million migrants that have crossed the border due to Biden's uh, lax border uh, policy. And now he's freaking out. So we'll get into that. In addition, this is something you have not heard in the news, but I think it's important. And I've got to educate somebody, some people, because you're otherwise never going to get it. A a gay Palestinian man uh, who escaped Palestine, because obviously you can't be gay in Palestine and, and live, escaped to Israel, applied for asylum. He was then either kidnapped or lured back to Palestine, where he promptly had his head separated from the rest of his body. This is something that is not in. I checked. It's not in the news in America. You can't find it. You've got to look on the internet. You've got to look on Twitter. You'll see it there. If you go to the Israeli news websites, you'll see it there. If you go to the European websites, you'll see it. For some reason in America, it is not being reported by the liberal press. And there's a reason why, but I'm going to go into that and you can, you're going to hear some ugliness that you otherwise uh, won't be able to, to get elsewhere, but it's important that you hear it. In addition, uh, we're going to talk about a case of mine that I had from about 10 years ago was a Hell's Angels member that I was representing on an extortion charge. He was allegedly collecting a a, a loan for the mob, and he was arrested for making threats, uh, trying to get the money back from the uh, victim who had taken the loan. And it's an incredible case. It's truly an incredible case. I'm going to get into it in a bit. And I never got to do any of it in court. Why? Because literally on the eve of the trial, on the eve, we were days away, the opening statement was written, the cross-examination of the main uh, victim slash cooperator slash witness was written 109 pages. It was, and, I, and I had sort of forgotten about it because the case was over and I had to move on to other things. But this might have been top five crosses of my life, and I never got to give it. So I'm going to go into that case in a bit, and you'll hear how it ended. And I think next week, I may just read the opening statement that I never got to give. And I may read some of my cross notes, some of the subjects. And I'm not going to read 109 pages because you'll be here for a day. And I'd rather not do that to you because you'll probably turn it off after about 18 hours or so. I mean, it's that interesting. Maybe the first 18 hours. After 18, I think your your eyes might get a little glassed over. But it's that good of a case. It was that good of a defense in a case that was unwinnable, completely unwinnable, or so we thought. But when you're pressed up against the wall and you have no choice but to fight in life, you find that sometimes you actually can find the fight. You can find the ability to get yourself out of the mess that you're in. And that's what happened in that case for me. And I'm going to get into that. But I want to start the podcast and talk about Mayor Adams, Mayor in the club, who took some time out from uh, his partying uh, over the last week to declare a state of emergency in New York City due to the influx of 17,000 migrants. And that's only 17,000, as I said, of the 2 million the Biden administration has welcomed to America. Apparently, Adams, who happily claimed that New York City was a sanctuary city, which welcomed all illegal immigrants, is better at virtue signaling about it than actually doing anything about it and dealing with it in New York City. For good reason, New York City shelters are bursting at the seams. 
You've got 5,500 migrant kids are now enrolled in New York City schools. Like, where do we fit these kids? 42 hotels have been converted to shelters to house these people. This is just 17,000 of the 2 million. Ten City is going up on Randall's Island. 61,000 migrants are in shelters, and that'll soon be 100,000, way more than New York City could ever handle. And did Adam seem concerned about this at the time, the fact that New York City is literally in the toilet? He didn't seem to be. The night before declaring the state of emergency, he was partying past 1 a.m. This is a 62-year-old man. Keep in mind, I don't know that he's actually had a job, like a real job in, I don't know how long, but I don't know what he actually did before he became mayor other than talk about, you know, all of his great accomplishments. He certainly doesn't have a job now because who goes out at 62 years old and parties till 1, 2, 3 a.m. during the week? Tell me, listeners, if there's any 62-year-olds or anybody even above the age of 40, who goes out until 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning during the week and gets drunk every single night? Eric Adams does. And it's not like he doesn't have an important job or anything. But he was partying uh, last week, the night before he declared a state of emergency in New York City. First, he was partying with the rappers French Montana and Ja Rule. He went to the restaurant of one of his friends, who's actually a convicted uh, federal money launderer. Then he went to the East Village nightclub where he hung out with the rappers until 1 a.m. But that wasn't enough. He didn't have to go to bed then. No, no, no. He went to another club with the rappers until an unknown hour. New York City elected a guy who just wants to be famous and do zero work. He, he wants to wear these fancy, shiny sports jackets, and he, he slaps on all of his bracelets, and he's got the jewelry. He's got the jewelry in each ear. He's got to have the jewelry. When you're 62 years old, you can't go out to the club without the jewelry in your ears. you got to have the jewelry. He does no work, though. And New York City actually got somebody worse than Bill de Blasio. Is it even possible that you could have somebody worse than de Blasio? De Blasio couldn't even wake up to go to his press conferences in the morning. New York City, we elected Huggy Bear. Huggy Bear is the mayor of New York City. If you don't know who Huggy Bear is, look that up on, on the Google. This is a 62-year-old guy, and he's partying all night Every night. At what point do we admit that this is just in a national embarrassment? How, how does he not understand the bad optics of this? Who is advising this ignoramus? He declares a state of emergency the morning after he's partaying all night. Now, suddenly, Adams hates illegal immigrants because they're killing New York City and they're killing his flow. He can't have that. He was yelling at Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the summer to stop complaining about taking in the migrants. Well, Abbott didn't have a choice. Texas didn't have a choice. But when Abbott sent them to New York City, Huggy Bear lost his damn mind. First, he built a tent in the Bronx to hold a thousand of them. Complete disaster. He was warned it was a flood zone. Naturally, what happened? It flooded. Even AOC, Alexandra Jimenez Ocortez, she even said it was dumb. And she's dumber than shit. It flooded. Plan got scrapped. Who paid for that, dear taxpayers? You did. I did. He doesn't care, Adams. And instead of blaming the influx of the migrants on the Biden administration, he had a, a press conference last week when he declared the national uh, state of emergency. Instead of blaming Biden for letting them all in, he's blaming it on Republicans who are sending a tiny fraction of the migrants to big liberal cities because the border towns are being overrun by the migrants along with all the crime that comes with them. He says New York City residents are angry at Republicans for this. Listen, I live in New York. We're mad at Biden for letting the fuck in. Do you think New Yorkers want the city overrun with this? The crime, the additional taxes, 17,000 migrants we can't handle. And Adams is complaining. Tell me when you get to 2 million. We've got the highest percentage of foreign-born residents in America in like the last hundred and something years. Why? Because Biden's letting millions of them in. And it's not like he, can, he can't stop them from coming in. He's welcoming them. Trump kept them out. Trump kept them out. 
Biden has made zero effort. Why? Because there are more votes for Democrats that are coming in. He knows it. He knows it. So he, he could stop it, Biden, but he doesn't want to. He's welcoming them. So when Kamala Harris says that the border is secure, it's a fucking lie. It's a lie. They're lying to you. Adam says uh, New York didn't ask for this. He did. He said he wanted them. He says it now that he wants the migrants. He doesn't want them stopped. But the problem is he's good at virtue signaling. It's not so much fun when you actually have to deal with this shit. Why is our crime rate up so high in New York City, all over big cities in America? Because two million unvetted migrants are running loose, stabbing people, killing people. Look at Las Vegas. There's a man that was charged with fatally stabbing two people on the strip and wounding six others during a crazed rampage uh, the other day. The guy was here illegally from Guatemala. And he has a criminal record. Who the fuck wants him here? He's stabbing Americans that pay taxes? And we have this guy running around stabbing people? Is that fair to us? This is what he said. We should protect our immigrants, period. Now, say this. Imagine you're Eric Adams and you've just been out partying the night before. New York City will remain a sanctuary city under an Adams administration. That's what he said a year ago. Send more buses of migrants to New York City. Flood it with illegals. Let the city be ripped to shreds. At some point, Adams and liberal New Yorkers will have to blame Biden and the Democrats' policy of open borders. If not, keep busing them to New York City, D.C., Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia. Flood these, flood these places with your peoples. Burn the cities to the ground. They'll get it. This is what you get when you elect liberals. You get a destroyed city. People get taxed the highest in the country here in New York City. The place is overrun by crime and violence, and no one here wants any more of this or the illegals that are flooding the city. Liberals want it as long as they don't have to deal with it. Now, listen to a few seconds of Adam's press conference declaring a state of emergency. I, I, I got to you, you got to listen to this. Hang on a second. I'm going to my producer is going to cue this. I got a producer. He's going to cue this up. And I want you to listen to this. And the real challenges that we're having, which is very fascinating. OK, you can stop it. Did he just say very fascinating? Is, is Elmer Fudd our fucking mayor here? Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbits. Now, look, I don't mind a mayor with a speech impediment. Giuliani had one. Guy had a lisp. But at least he was competent. We can't even get a guy who can even speak English. Anyway, Democratic Socialists, you know, which is basically running the city, they love socialism. But they don't explain why Venezuela, a socialist country, is failed and is sending its population here. But yeah, keep voting for this slop. Keep voting for it. 81 million Americans wanted this? I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. And, and I just read an article this morning. I want to read some of it to you. I saw it in the paper about migrant buses that were sent to Staten Island. It's like the only red part of New York City. I'm going to read this to you. It's shocking. Migrants were bused into New York City. They've been walking through the streets of a Staten Island neighborhood asking for food, clothes, and work after they were put up in hotels there. The migrants, many not ready for the colder temperatures of the Big Apple, are staying at a property in Travis, Chelsea, that includes the Staten Island Inn, Holiday Inn, and Fairfield Inn. The Staten Island Inn is completely booked with migrants, one worker claimed. One migrant, Geraldine Silva, told the Post outside of the inn that she arrived about a week ago after she was bussed from El Paso. The Venezuelan native was wearing only a t-shirt, sweatpants, and flip-flops on a night when temperatures dropped into the 40s. We do not have clothing, and we are not eating well. We need a place to work, Silva, 31, told the New York Post. Get the fuck out! How about that? The fuck wants you here? Walking around complaining that you're not getting taken care of? You're illegal. You're a criminal. You expect, you come here and you expect, go back to Venezuela. That's what, they hate America. Your leadership does go back there. We are waiting for clothes, the mother said, shivering besides a handful of kids and other migrants. A holiday and employee said the migrants first arrived a week ago. I want to know, who's paying for all those hotel rooms that they're in? They filled up the entire hotel. Hotel isn't even taking guests. It's getting paid to take migrants. Who is paying for the rooms? You are. You are. 
You are. And what are we even sending them there for? There's no laundry service at these places. There's no place for them to shop. They don't have cars. What are they going to do? The sudden influx, I'm going to continue reading, the sudden influx of migrants has overwhelmed local residents who said the newcomers have been going door to door, knocking on homes, asking for clothes and other necessities. Terrence Jones, a Staten Island resident and business owner, said he was caught off guard when some migrants rang his doorbell multiple times. They were speaking Spanish. I just said I only speak English. It was like three times, he told the Post. He said one person was wrapped in a blanket. They were underdressed. They had slippers on, a red chloros blanket. I thought it was weird. Another uh, uh, guy said that uh, he lives near the hotels. He received multiple knocks on his doors. I've had it happen three times. The fourth time was today. A woman handed me a paper identifying herself as a migrant. They were dressed for 100-degree weather, he said. He said his wife was looking for any extra clothes she had around the house to donate. What gets me is desperate people do desperate things. That's what worries me, he said. He's right. These people are desperate out of their minds, and we're just dropping them into to neighborhoods where people are working their ass off during the day. And aren't they going to be afraid to leave their homes when these migrants are, are running around looking for food, looking for money? I mean, it's, this is also what he said. It's not the right thing to do for the neighborhood to overload it. Where are they going to go to school? There's only one school in the neighborhood. And, and the hotels weren't even informed of this. They just showed up the buses. What we've seen is pregnant women, little children starving. He said he watched the, the famished migrants wolf down a whole slice of pizza in a second. What I've experienced is people come to my pizzeria and ask for food. I tell them to come back at the end of the day. A man came back with his pregnant wife, five or six kids. <laughs> at the end of the day, these people are just hungry. It's a good neighborhood, but they don't seem to have a plan. Walking around hungry people is fucking not good, he said. This is what he said to the paper, noting that the migrants had already stolen food off the shelves of a nearby store. This is what you get when you elect slop as your president. 81 million Americans wanted this shit. Come on, man. Come on. The crime, they're desperate. They're sending them now to neighborhoods where people have manicured lawns. They take pride in, in their hard work and what they've accomplished. And now they're going to have people defecating on their lawns and robbing and, and, and beating them. Is that what we want? Really? Now, I'm not like a xenophobe. Let them come in, a few of them. Be very careful, the ones that you let in. Trump managed to do it. Listen, Trump is an idiot, and he managed to figure it out. Are you telling me that we need to just let these, they have some right to come to America and overrun us when we're at a time where everything is so bad here economically? It just doesn't make any sense. You can't be this stupid and actually think this is a good idea. Is anybody listening to this think this is a good idea? That our country is overrun with two million? You've got, what, two more years of this? We're getting a million a year? You may have six more years of this with Biden? You're going to have 10 million of this. Where are they going to live? They're not. They're going to rob and they're going to they're come to your home knocking on your door. If I saw a bunch of these people at my door, I'm answering with a gun. What else do you do? These people are desperate. You come to my house and you start ringing my doorbell, you're going to look at a gun. What else can I do? I'm not going to open the door and take a chance that you're going to do something. You're desperate. I get it. Desperate people do desperate things. We don't have the money for all of this. Who voted for this? Who's so fucking stupid to have voted for this? And I'm a liberal socially. But Jesus H, come on, man. Now, speaking of, uh, the midterm elections are in a month. One month. The economy is in the toilet. The stock market is in a bear market, the worst we've had in decades. Inflation is at a 41-year high. Taxes are going up, even as we're spending $21 million to rename army bases, which were named for Confederate generals 100 years ago. This is what we're spending $21 million on. We could have used that money to give those migrants some food or given it back to the taxpayers of New York that are paying for this shit. Violent crime is up in every major city, coinciding with the largest influx of illegals we've ever allowed in, up to 2 million, as I said so far, for Biden. You're paying for this. You, the people who can at least afford to do it, 
due to the rampant inflation, the shitty economy. Gas prices are at an all-time high, and the Saudis are cutting production and blaming Biden for refusing to drill for oil here. Instead, we're begging Venezuela to buy oil from them. They're sending their people over here. We have to beg them for oil. Why? We have more oil than almost any country on the planet. But Biden won't drill because he's a leftist. You voted for it. So now we're begging Venezuela. Forget that the president of Venezuela is under indictment here in New York for narco-terrorism, for purposely flooding America with cocaine in an effort to destabilize America. He's under indictment. There's a $15 million reward on his head. He's facing life in prison here. Joe Biden is begging him to let America eliminate sanctions on Venezuela so we can buy his oil because he won't drill. This is the leftist way. Destroy the oil industry. Climate, 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 climate. Illegals, illegals, illegals. This is the leftist way. But now the midterms are coming up in a month. Gasoline prices are flying high. A gallon of regular octane gas, just regular, in California is $6.39 a gallon. Biden needs to increase production because he needs to get those prices down so he can get some votes. That's all he cares about. If this was two months later, he wouldn't give a shit. But we're going to buy oil from a narco-terrorist. Biden did, however, cancel $10,000 in student debt for all the upperly mobile white college grads, because that's who graduates college on average, at a cost of $400 billion to the rest of us. Why did he do it? He said he wanted Americans with college debt to be able to buy a home. You want to buy a home now? You can't. The 30-year mortgage rate is at about 7%. It was 3.22% nine months ago. That means if you take out a $500,000 mortgage, your monthly payments will have gone up 53% over the last nine months. 53%. There's your 10 grand flushed down the inflation toilet. Oh, and you'll be paying higher taxes to pay for that 10 grand you got back. That's now been flushed down the toilet. Foreign policy? We're begging Iran, which is killing its own people, to sign a nukes agreement so that we can give them hundreds of billions of dollars to use to kill our allies and their own people and Americans, as they did last week in Iraq with a rocket strike, killed an American. We don't care. We just care about virtue signaling and, and, and making nice with killers. You want more reasons to be sickened by the Democrats today? Well, Joe Biden is looking for dead congresswomen in the audience during his speeches days before he was scheduled to have a memorial ceremony for the dead woman in the White House. His affirmative action spokesperson, who's black and gay, check, check, checks both of those boxes. She's a horrible liar and incompetent. She claimed that Joe wasn't looking for a dead person, even though he clearly was. Where is she? Where is she? Is she here? She's fucking dead in the ground, man. Black and gay is more important than competence in today's leftist America. Oh, and on Biden's watch, Russia invaded our ally, the Ukraine, and Biden said this week that we are facing the prospect of nuclear Armageddon. Well, that's a happy thing to think about, isn't it? Isn't that a happy? We elected this guy, and now we're facing nuclear Armageddon. Immediately, all of his aides walked it back, but Biden is senile and says anything that's in his mind when he's not reading off a teleprompter. Things are so bad in America, and you may actually be okay with nuclear Armageddon at this point. So after all this, how can anyone think Biden and the administration is doing well? How can anyone think America's on the right path? People can't afford to feed their families as inflation is killing the grocery bills that we all have to pay. And then what's going to happen with the 2 million migrants that are flooding America? Higher crime, taking more money out of our pockets. But listen to these poll numbers from last week. 40% of registered voters said Republicans were the party best suited to address immigration. 40 compared to 32% who picked Democrats. Are you telling me that it's only 40 to 32? <laughs> They've let 2 million in. The country is, is completely overrun. Every big city has higher crime because of them. People are being killed by these illegal immigrants. And it's just 40 to 32? Who are the idiots that think this is good? That think the Democrats can handle this? For solving crime, 39% picked Republicans and 30 picked Democrats. Crime is at an all-time high here now, in decades. And just 39 to 30? How insane are you leftists? You'll, you don't even care about your country. You just care about your party. Is this a joke? We had no immigration issues with Trump in office. He was stopping them from coming in. 
Who caused the crime rise? It was Joe Biden and the Democrats, 39 to 30. As for issues that are important to voters, overall, 30% of registered voters in the poll said their top concern was inflation. That's a lot, 30%. The next biggest, 5% chose immigration. The next, crime. If these are your most important issues, how can you even think to vote Democratic? Where's abortion? Why isn't that on the top one? Suddenly no one cares about it because you can't feed your family. I'm pro-choice. I was against the Supreme Court decision outlawing abortion, not outlawing it, but giving it back to the states. It's not that big of a deal. Wear a fucking rubber. Take birth control. If you're stupid enough to get pregnant, take a, a, a plan B. Or go to another state and get an abortion if your, store, your state doesn't give it. It's not like it's impossible to get it. Do you really think this is more important than the crime in America, the inflation? Come on, man. You can't possibly think it. Here's another poll from Monmouth University last week. The poll asked about the importance of 12 issues for the federal government to address. Those rated either extremely or very important by the largest number of Americans include inflation, number one, crime, number two, jobs and unemployment's up there. Incredibly, elections and voting is up there as well, and immigration. So one of those is a Democratic issue. One of them. Elections and voting. Actually, that's a Republican issue as well, because we know that 81 million people voted for Joe Biden. This is the guy that never inspired anybody. 81 million got the most votes in history. Yeah, that makes sense. The next tier of issues that concern Americans include transportation and energy infrastructure. Then you got abortion. Then you got racial inequality. Then you got gun control. And then you got climate. All those social issues are on the bottom. The least important, COVID and student loan debt. The stuff anybody cares about is feeding your family and keeping them safe. That's it. They don't care about your, your stupid social issues. They can't afford to now. About 8 in 10 Republicans put inflation, crime, and immigration at the top of their issue list. Similar number of Americans prioritize climate change, racial inequality, elections and voting, gun control, and abortion. This is how different the two parties are. So why is the country overall more concerned with the economy and crime instead of these bullshit social issues that Dems care about? Because independence. The only issue which more than three and in four independents place high importance on is inflation. Independents are common sense people. They're more concerned about overall economic issues along with crime and integration than they are with these bullshit social justice issues. Democrats are completely out of touch with reality. And you're telling me that people are going to vote Democratic in a month? Absolute madness. Now, I'm going to take uh, a, a second to talk about news this week, and it's, I'm going to completely shift. A 25-year-old Palestinian gay man was found with his head cut off in Hebron, a Palestinian town. The man had fled Palestine to Israel seeking asylum because of the threats that he had received in Palestine, because Palestinians hate gays, along with Jews, along with, you know, pretty much everybody else, including each other. The beheading was captured on video and uploaded online for all to see. Because when you're a Palestinian and you're killing a gay, it's not enough just to kill the gay. You need to scare the rest of the gays. His head was found separated from his body on the ground. The gay man had lived in Israel for two years and was headed for a new life in Canada in a couple months when he was either lured back or kidnapped back to uh, the Palestinian terror enclave and murdered. Now, keep in mind that he was killed in the area of Palestine controlled by the so-called good terrorists, the Palestinian Authority, not to be confused with the bad terrorists, Hamas, who rule over Gaza. This barely got any news in the American mainstream press, and, and I mean the liberal press. Nothing in the New York Times, look for it. Nothing on CNN or MSNBC, I looked online. Nothing like it never happened. Nothing from squad member Rashida Tlaib. She's the Palestinian congresswoman from Michigan who regularly demonizes Israel on Twitter and publicly. Nothing from Ilhan Omar. She's the Somalian-born Palestinian terrorist-supporting member of Congress from Minnesota. Both were very loud in denouncing Israel and demanding that Israel stop receiving American aid after a Palestinian reporter was killed in a crossfire between Israeli defense forces and Palestinian terrorists in May. 
Palestinian terrorists were committing terror. Israel went in to try to stop it. Shots were fired both ways, and a reporter was killed. Everybody freaked out, and immediately all the big-mouthed Democrats called for the ending of aid to Israel in favor of these scummy terrorists? I mean, come on, man. Why do you think there was so much purposeful efforts to stop Americans from learning the story of this poor gay man, Ahmad Abu Marhia? who was forced out of his home to go to Israel, the enemy, for just wanting to love who he wanted to love. And that wasn't enough for the Palestinians. It wasn't enough that they chased them out. They regularly kill and torture gays over there. It wasn't enough that Ahmad was chased into Israel. They needed to kill him, even though he wasn't bothering anyone. They kidnapped him or lured him back, and they sawed his head off on video and put it on the internet to scare the shit out of any other gays in Palestine to ensure that they never show their faces in public again. We give these people billions of dollars in aid. Billions. Now, people say, well, beheading, the beheading wasn't a government act. It was done by the people of Palestine. It wasn't the government. Well, it's illegal to be gay in Palestine, and the government routinely executes gays. Routinely. Hamas will blame someone for some pretextual crime. Oh, he stole some money and execute them. Turns out the person's gay. So yes, the government is the same as the people over there when it comes to gays. They hate them and they kill them and they torture them. But here's something I want to explain. I keep hearing how the poor Palestinians are being held hostage by Hamas, the terror group which rules Gaza. First of all, they only rule half of Palestine and none of it is in the West Bank that they rule. So the people that did this killing, they weren't ruled by Hamas. It was in the West Bank. And the reason that Hamas even rules uh, in Gaza is because Palestinians voted them into office in overwhelming numbers. Now, granted, they haven't had elections in 15 or 20 years because, you know, it's a terror area. But the people love the terrorists. They support the terrorists. To suggest they need to be freed from Hamas is just a construct. It's fabricated by liberals in America to try to convince others that Palestinians are victims, when in fact they're full-fledged terrorist supporters, enablers, and co-conspirators of the terror. All of this propaganda is done for one purpose, to suggest that Palestinians are innocent victims of Israel, when in fact Palestinians are Hamas and Hamas are Palestinians. You don't believe me? Let me add this. Look at the Arab Spring, which occurred, what, 10, 12 years ago? So many dictatorships were sacked. The people revolted. They wanted freedom. Egypt's uprising caused the arrest and imprisonment of its dictator, Mubarak. Tunisia, Libya, they killed Gaddafi. Remember that? Bahrain, they fought and died to change the regime. Yemen, a civil war began. The leadership was sacked. In Syria, famously, the people fought back against the Iranian-backed butcher, Assad. 500,000 people died. Some of them were gassed by Assad, fighting for their freedom. Not all the uprisings resulted in change. Many Arab terror leaders just clamped down harder on their people, like Assad in Syria. You know what's the one place that there was barely a peep against the dictators in charge? Palestine. They're in the midst of a civil war over there, and they've been for 15 years. But the war isn't for freedom. It's a war between the two terror groups, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, to determine which terror group leads them all. There are many other smaller terror groups there, and their members are permitted to walk around freely because it is a terror enclave. As I said, Hamas, the notorious Iranian-backed, internationally recognized terror group, controls Gaza, half of Palestine, and is doing all that it can to take over the rest of it. They're the most popular of of the two sets of leaders, even though they crush any free speech of the people, any freedoms. They run the Gaza Strip the way a mafia family would. They extort the people, they imprison them, they kill their enemies, they act like ISIS. They drag bodies down the road behind motorcycles, they torture their enemies. Like clockwork, they begin wars against Israel, only to have their leaders safely hidden away when Israel responds to rocket fire. And the people there bear the brunt of the response time and time again. The so-called good leadership of the Palestinians who control the West Bank, well, that's the Palestinian Authority, run by terrorist leader Mahmoud Abbas. He's a famous Holocaust denier who worked as the number two man under arch-Palestinian terrorist Yasser Arafat. Abbas actually has a PhD in Holocaust denial. Imagine that. He received it due to his 1982 thesis titled The Secret Connection Between the Nazis and the Leaders of the Zionist Movement. 
In his thesis, Abbas wrote that the estimated number of Jews killed during World War II was less than a million. Forget six million. There's proof, easily proven that six million died. But Abbas is a Holocaust denier. He stated that Jews collaborated with the Nazi regime to facilitate the widespread destruction of Jews, when in fact it was Palestinians that conspired with Hitler. But he's blaming the Jews for killing themselves. That's his thesis. That's what you get. You can get a PhD for that shit if you're a terrorist. In his introduction to his his work that was published in 1984, Abbas raised doubts regarding the existence of the gas chambers. He asserted again that the number of Jews killed during the war was about a million. He's openly called for the murder of Jews, and yet this is what passes in the West as a moderate Palestinian leader and one who has received billions of dollars of American and Western aid. Why? Because compared to Hamas, a genocidal terror group which calls for the slaughter of Jews worldwide, Abbas is moderate, I guess. He's just a Holocaust-denying killer. We give them billions of dollars. They steal the money for their leaders. They have zillions of dollars of property, boats, you name it, houses. And they give some of the money that we give them, the taxpayer, to their imprisoned killer terrorists who are in an Israeli jails for killing Israelis. Those killers get our money, American tax money. The good Palestinians, Abbas's Palestinian authority, refused to stop spending our aid money on imprisoned killers. It's called pay for slay. That's what they do. They pay these animals. But let's go back to the beheading of this poor gay man, Ahmad Abu Maria. Say his name. Say it. Ahmad Abu Maria. Say it. Say it. America's liberal press refuses to report on it. America's Democratic Party refused to speak of it. Why? Because they don't want America to take their eye off their efforts to demonize Israel. And reporting that a gay man, you know, a pet cause of the left, they love the gays, he had his head sawed off on video, will not help their efforts to blame Israel for all the bad things that happen in Palestine, which of course are all caused by Palestinians instead. What's interesting is the so-called official reaction by the Palestinian retreat to this uh, beheading. A presenter for the Palestinian radio station, Karama, said that the crime had, quote, crossed every single red line in our society, whether in terms of morals, customs, or basic humanity. That is bullshit. That's complete bullshit. First of all, the Palestinians hate gays, as we all know. The Palestinian Authority, the good terrorists, as I said, who we give billions of our tax dollars to, The Palestinian Authority police issued an official statement in August of 2019 encouraging members of the the public to report on the activities of LGBTQ plus groups in the West Bank. Why? To imprison them or to kill them, period, end of story. And don't tell me that this was such a horrific crime for these people. They're just embarrassed by it because the world is seeing it and they have to pretend that they're embarrassed. They're not embarrassed. Hamas, the the bad terrorists, they routinely torture people. They hand out candy to children when a Jewish baby had his head cut off by terrorists. That happened in 2011. An Israeli family of five was killed by Palestinian terrorists. Three of them were children, ages 11, 4, and a three-month-old infant. The baby was decapitated, head cut off. Hamas, the elected leadership of the Palestinians in Gaza, who Democrats, many of them claim, is not a terror group, they celebrated and handed out candy and pastries to children in honor of this, and they called it a heroic operation. Their words, not mine. They called the murderers heroic. The military wing of Mahmoud Abbas's good terrorist party, the Palestinian Authority, they said it was heroic. What kind of diseased scumbags hand out candy to kids when they kill someone? Who else does this? Saturday night, just Saturday night, they opened fire on a policewoman in Israel who was manning a checkpoint between Israel and the Palestinian territories. Why? Because they're terrorists and they're trying to get into Israel to kill. That was her job. They killed her. They handed out sweets to children. That's what Palestinians do. How sick are these people? It's bad enough that child rape is rampant in the Palestinian territories, but they need to brainwash the kids to hate as well. But let's get back to disgusting crimes that they do, because they claim they were were appalled by this beheading of the gay man. Really? They don't like those kind of crimes? 
Well, this is what the Palestinians actually revel in. In 1972, if you're old enough to remember, or if you can read, eight Palestinian terrorists from the good Palestinian terrorist party, they broke into the athletes' village at the Munich Olympics, and they took Israeli athletes and coaches hostage in their rooms. They murdered all of them, 11, the entire team. They tortured them before killing them. They broke their bones, and they even castrated some of them. This is the Palestinian way. And any sane person would be embarrassed by this history if it was theirs, right? Whites are ashamed by slavery, aren't we? Lynchings of blacks, discrimination, we're ashamed by it. Certainly, we don't want to talk about it other than to rectify it. We're embarrassed by it. Castrating Olympic athletes who had nothing to do with politics? Castrating these athletes? Well, last month was the 50th anniversary of it. Really, one of the most heinous terrorist acts ever. The good terrorists of Palestine, those of the Palestinian Authority, they published a post online celebrating the 50th anniversary of this action carried out by heroes. Their words. They had a poster with a photo of Israeli athletes tied up and held at gunpoint by the terrorists. They're still proud of it. You Americans give them billions in aid. These are demonic, psychotic, diseased people. You want more? I'll give you more. In 2000, two Israelis took a wrong turn and ended up in Palestinian territory. They were immediately set upon and lynched and had their bodies mutilated. The terrorists who did this showed their bloody hands with the organs of the Israelis clutched in them to the cheering crowd of rank-and-file Palestinians. You know, the poor people being held hostage by Hamas. Except it was in the West Bank, the area controlled by the good Palestinians. Organs were ripped out and paraded by regular Palestinians after they tossed one of the bodies out the window of a second floor building. The crowd tore the body apart. 18 years later, an official uh, Palestinian Authority television program, those are the good terrorists, they honored the three Palestinians who took part in this vicious lynching. The killers were described as heroic for lynching the men. We have given these, these very people billions of dollars, and the liberal press covers for them. But you can't hide the stain, the disease that is the Palestinian people, and not the leadership only. The people who support them, the people who never rose up against them in the Arab Spring. Why didn't they rise up against them? Because they support it. And they don't just support it, they're proud of it. Now, I'm going to take a break for a second, and uh, I'm a little bit exhausted from that screaming and yelling, and we're going to talk about a case of mine from 10 years ago. We're going to shift gears completely, take a break, uh, I don't know, go to the bathroom, whatever you need to get that disgustingness that I just talked about out of your mind. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lakeman back for Beyond the Legal Layman, and we're going to talk about um, a case that I had from about 10 or 11, 12 years ago, a defendant charged with two counts of extortion. It was a case in which a music promoter, a small time, borrowed money from a, a supposedly mafia-connected businessman named Rodriguez and couldn't pay it back. And lo and behold, some scary people showed up to try to get the money back and people that were supposedly hired by the mafia to do so. The victim who supposedly owed the money was terrified and as he's being threatened and he contacts the FBI and they wired him up and tapes were made, like 17 tapes in all that covered about 60 transcript pages. And the man supposedly sent to collect the money was a Hells Angels member was my client. And the tapes were pretty ugly, open and shut case is kind of what the feds thought. And my client really looked the part. He was like six foot something. He was gigantic, huge bald head. He had tattoos on his neck up both sides and just a really scary looking dude. I've talked about him before in, in podcasts. He happened to have been one of my favorite clients ever. I just, we really hit it off really uh, down to earth, calm guy, very smart. He got himself into a bad situation and I, I loved him and I wanted to help him any way that I could. Now, my client, the hired muscle, as I said, was indicted, as was the alleged mafia-connected businessman. In addition, some alleged mafia associates were indicted for their involvement in the loan and the collection as well. 
And then it got worse. Uh, the government superseded the indictment a few months before trial and added another extortion with another victim. And he would testify that my client visited him along with the same mafia-connected businessman who was under indictment, and they had made him, uh, the businessman had made him a loan too, and uh, the victim hadn't paid it back, and the same two guys, uh, the businessman and my client, allegedly visited him and roughed him up in order to get the money back. And obviously, one time it happening was bad. The second time, there's sort of a pattern, and it, gets, it get, becomes a tougher case to defend. Now, my client was adamant he wasn't going to go to prison for it. And it seemed odd to me as the case appeared very strong. It was a federal case in the Southern District of New York, which is not even a question. The best U.S. attorney's office in the country by far, Uh, the smartest lawyers, toughest judges. So if they said they have a case, you have to listen. And this one had tapes and they had multiple victims. So the case appeared very strong and he was, my guy was the lead defendant with the most evidence against him. But when a client tells you that they're not going to take any jail time, you don't really have a choice if you're the lawyer who actually respect what you do for a living. You're not going to just huddle up in tears and cry. You have to do something. You can't just say you can't do it. You can't just do it. You have to figure something out. I mean, I guess you can just give up, but you know, this is a lazy profession as it is. People are more interested in, in putting their accolades on LinkedIn and on uh, Instagram. There's a guy on Instagram I know that took over a case for a client that couldn't afford to pay me anymore. And he's huge on Instagram, huge on Instagram. But reading his posts, they're just completely idiotic drivel. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So I checked. He graduated one of the worst law schools in the country and became a lawyer in 2021. And that's who my poor former client hired. So good luck with that case. Anyway, people don't really want to work in this profession. The clients are difficult and it's kind of a bad combination. But back then, this was 2011, the choice was stark for me. He said he wasn't going to jail and the feds never offered a no jail deal. Everybody else in the case was going to jail. So certainly the top guy on the indictment was going to have to. So the case had to go to trial and I'm either going to get embarrassed and lose or figure my way out of it. And I don't want to get embarrassed. I mean, it's the worst feeling ever when you're a criminal defense lawyer of some reputation. You don't want to go in there and get humiliated. So for me, I pride myself on figuring my way out of bad situations. The worse, the better. Because there is an answer to every puzzle if you just put the time in and you actually think you do some work. So I tried to imagine what would a jury think with this evidence. The victim in this case was a fellow named Artie Pabone. He was a small-time music promoter back then in 2011 when the trial was gearing up. Apparently now he's slightly bigger and he's got some bigger artists he manages or he's a business partner. I don't know. But this was just the worst person, a horrible person. And I figured that the jury would be a bit pissed off at a guy who borrows money and refuses to pay it back and then runs to the feds in order to avoid having to pay it back. You know, you run to the feds and your debt is extinguished. So I thought that was something like a thread to pull on. Maybe I could make something of it. And the government was forced to turn over some information that was potentially helpful to the defense. That's the law. It's called providing Brady information. And that's named after a Supreme Court case. I think it's 1963 which requires the the government to turn over any material they have, which might uh, not only exonerate the defendant, but in further Supreme Court uh, clarifications later, any evidence which could impeach the government witnesses, they have to turn over. The case is Brady versus Maryland, and you can read about it if you Google it uh, from 1963 Supreme Court. And in this case, in my case, they turned over two pieces of information. First, that Pabone had a bad gambling problem in which he gambled away $550,000 during the period he supposedly couldn't pay the debt back to my client and the guy that he showed up with. In addition, they turned over information that Pabone was a wife beater. He had beaten his wife repeatedly and then been arrested for it. But they successfully moved to the judge to exclude that information from the trial, claiming that the jury would hate him and ignore the evidence, that it was too prejudicial. And the wife beating allegations, I mean, I understand that they were inflammatory. I thought they should have been allowed in. 
I fought hard to get it into the case, and not because I wanted to show the jury that he was a wife beater and couldn't be believed, but because on tapes that he had made for the government, he kept saying, now keep in mind that he was making tapes for the government. He knew that he was being taped. My client didn't. So he could play act all he wanted, knowing that that was going to be on a tape for a jury to hear someday. He kept saying that he wanted to keep his family safe from the harm that was allegedly threatened by my client, when at the same time, he's knocking the crap out of his wife to the point that she lost consciousness and he got arrested for it. So I thought that should have come in. The judge wouldn't allow it. But Artie was such a con man. He was such a crook. And the government didn't know somehow mainly because they never bothered to look into his financial dealings, that he had bounced hundreds of checks, ripped off banks by what he was doing. He was paying for overdraft protection on his account. So checks would then bounce and the banks made them good, but they never could collect the money from him. He was sued over and over for money that he owed by banks, and he, he beat not just the banks, but other people that he owed money to. My client and the person he was collecting money from was just one uh, in a very long line of victims of Artie. Now, Artie had declared bankruptcy. He had homes and mortgages that were foreclosed upon. And his wife, he was in the midst of a divorce from her and their kids. They'd been forced to move out of houses of a house that had been foreclosed upon. He wasn't paying his child support on time, sometimes wasn't paying it at all, alimony. And his wife kept on having to go to court to chase him for it. Now, how did I know this? Well, I did some research on Artie. This is what you do when you actually care about cases. You actually do the work. You take your break from Instagram. You take your break from LinkedIn telling about how smart you are. And I actually did some research on the guy. And I contacted his wife's divorce attorney. And she not only provided all of Artie's affidavits pertaining to his finances, in which he lied over and over, but she invited me to court to see Artie actually lie in person in Connecticut. I ended up sending investigators. We got all the information we needed. The guy completely defrauded his, his wife. He lied to the court. He lied under oath in that Connecticut divorce case. None of this was purportedly known by the government in my case. They turned over information about his gambling losses, but never investigated his divorce and the fact that he had beaten so many people for money while losing so much of that money gambling. And it was shocking to me, like, were the feds willfully blind to this? Or did they assume I wouldn't dig into Artie's life and find out all about his dirty financial dealings? To me, it was fairly obvious what had occurred. The government decided at the beginning who their victim was and who the criminal was in our case. The prosecutors were ambitious and wanted to win, and nothing would deter them, including the truth. They stopped caring about the truth, clearly, and only cared about the chance to win a federal case. And that's where they were vulnerable because they were so wedded to Artie as some kind of poor, sad victim. Well, my client, as I said, refused to plead guilty, despite, as I said, everyone in the case pleading and taking some jail time. He always said the same line to me. You're a great attorney. I paid you a lot of money. I'm not going to jail. And each time I'd get a lower plea offer with less jail time, he would tell me the same line. You're a great lawyer. I paid you a lot of money. I'm not going to jail. And when a guy was six foot five and 300 pounds and all muscle with a shaved head and tattoos running up his neck tells you that, you listen. Now, I had the goods on Artie, you know, the so-called victim. It didn't exactly negate the extortion that had occurred in my mind, however, but I felt that it could turn the jury, or at least enough of them against Artie, against the government, and they might refuse to convict. So finally, we are days before the opening statement. I had no choice but to go to trial. The guy refused to take a deal. And I had a 109-page cross-examination of Artie that was ready to go. I had forgotten about this. I'm on call with the prosecutor. We're, we're finalizing the jury instructions that, judge, that the judge will have to give at the end of the case. And it's basically instructions that read to the jury to tell them, look, you've heard all the facts. Here's the law. Now apply the law to the facts. And that's what's done at the very end of the case. And on our phone call, the prosecutor mentions to me that she had some more Brady information to provide. And as I said, that's the information that's helpful to the defense. She tells me that Artie had bounced a check, which the bank had to cover, and they never got their money back. Just one is what she told me. One. She had never told me any of this before. Now, this was obviously the tip of the iceberg. In fact, Robbie had uh, Artie had robbed banks numerous times along the way. And the prosecutor was just telling me of one of them? Seemed odd. And I had a decision to make on that phone call right then and there. Do I come clean 
Do I tell her how Artie had lied to her and, and only confessed to doing this one time, but that he had done it over and over and over? Do I tell her how he lied during the divorce case under oath? How he had ripped off so many people? Or do I hold it for the cross-examination so that she's caught off guard? So Artie's caught off guard, so they can't be prepared for this cross. If I tell her now on the phone and we don't work out a deal, and my client Joe did not want a deal, she'll have already prepped for all this and this devastating impeachment material they might be ready for. Or otherwise, an idiot like Artie would get caught flat-footed. So this is why you hire a lawyer. This is what you hire him for for his common sense under a lot of pressure in a very quick moment. I decided to take a shot. And I'm telling you, this is what makes a lawyer good or bad. It's nothing you learn in law school. It's judgment. Many lawyers would have been terrified to give up this great impeachment material, assuming that they weren't lazy enough and actually did it, made it. Knowing that if the, you, you couldn't reach a deal, and knowing they had a client who refused to plea unless there was a guarantee of no prison, their crosses would be gutted. I didn't care. I wasn't afraid of, of having my cross gutted because I felt that even if they knew what was coming, they weren't going to be able to stop it. So I gave most of my impeachment up to the prosecutor on that call. Not all of it, but most of it. I wanted to keep some of the good stuff just in case. But before I did, before I would give her this information, I said, look, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. If you want to hear what I got, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. You call up Artie right now and get back to me. Ask him one question. Have you ever lied under oath before? She agreed. She hung up the phone. She called him. She asked him. And she called me right back. Artie claimed he had never lied under oath. Now, this was an easily proven lie as I had his affidavits from the divorce case done under oath where he claimed he had zero dollars to his name at the time that he gambled away $550,000. I had him dead to rights right now. Dead. And he just lied to the prosecutor. That in itself is a crime. I then told the prosecutor what I had on Artie, and she was stunned. She asked me to sit by the phone and she'd call me right back. She did. And she offered me a plea to get rid of the extortion charge. That's all he was charged with, though. She promised no prison or basically sentencing guidelines. That's how your sentence, your crime is scored according to sentencing guidelines. And uh, whatever the score is relates to a set of months that a judge can give for a, a, a sentence. And it's just advisory, but judges follow it to some extent. And she said, I can't guarantee what the judge is going to do, but I'm going to give you guidelines where there's no jail that's, that he's facing. But we had to figure out what crime could even fit a, a no jail guidelines deal because he was only charged with extortion. So we just hunted around the, the criminal code, and I found one, misprison of a felony, which was a complete fiction. And the, what that is, is anyone who has knowledge of the commission of a felony and conceals it or does not make it known to some judge or some authority of the United States, you face up to three years incarceration. Well, we fabricated a crime. I called Joe up, and I said, well, you got your no jail deal. You're a great lawyer. I paid you a lot of money. I'm not taking it. I said, Joe, you're taking it. And he did. He pled guilty and he got no prison. Everyone else in the case was less culpable than him. They all went to jail. Now, I had a 109-page cross-examination that I looked at this morning before I uh, made this podcast, and it is devastating. It was poetry. It was incredible. And I remember that I said to the prosecutor, if I'm going to take this deal, I want you to promise to bring Artie Pabone in on a Saturday and let me cross-examine him. I want this cross-examination done. She laughed. I was kind of serious. My opening questions of this 109-page cross that I never gave, I found it this morning from January of 2012. Here is how my cross started. Before we get into the examination, I want to ask you a simple question or two. Are you a liar? Second question, are you capable of lying to this jury today? That was the punch in the face that he was getting at the start. And that was going to be the highlight for him of the cross because it was down that hill from there. Now, next week, because I don't have enough time now, I'm going to read the opening statement I never gave. 
and I'm going to go through some of that cross-examination. As I said, it was devastating. It was just absolutely devastating. I never got to do that cross, and reading it this morning, all 109 pages, made me nauseous. But next week, I'm going to let you listen to some of it. The notes of mine are from 2012. They're frozen in time. They've never seen the light of day before. But you're going to hear them here on this podcast. I can be found on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. See you next week.